I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we derish chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Derish Chai Experiment, the show where we recognize and seek to bring honor to our king and where we attempt to discern his ways. Back when we started Deuteronomy, we covered the interesting and possibly even surprising fact that the book of Deuteronomy takes the form of an ancient legal document, a form of a treaty that was made between kings in the ancient Near East. This form of treaty was known as the Suzerain-Vassal Treaty, and we have dozens of examples of this form of treaty in the archaeological record. And each of these treaties follows certain forms with few exceptions. The parts of a Suzerain-Vassal Treaty are as follows. 1. There's the preamble. We saw this in the first five verses of Deuteronomy, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. 2. The historical prologue. The remainder of the first four chapters of Deuteronomy contain this section, Deuteronomy 1, 6 through 449. Three, the stipulations, laws, and regulations. Well, for the past several months, this is where we have been. Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 25, 19 contains the listings of the rules, regulations, commands, and stipulations of law that Hashem expected from his vassals. And as we have discussed in depth, The regulations contained in these chapters are all an expansion of the first ten commands. And that is all that we have seen up to this point of the Suzerain-Vassal Treaty of Deuteronomy. In the last eight chapters of this book, we will find these remaining parts of the treaty in no particular order. 4. Arrangements for depositing treaty copies. 5. Arrangements for the regular reading of the treaty before the people. 6. The handling of tribute from the vassal to the suzerain. 7. A record of the witnesses of the covenant agreement. And 8. Curses for violating the covenant stipulations and blessings for obedience to them. And this week we transition from one portion to the next. In a way. You see, what we're about to read is technically not disconnected from the laws, rules, and regulations portion of the treaty. And yet this section contains its own topic. You see, every one of these treaties has a list of laws, and as part of these laws is what might be considered a subsection, but which I have, for the sake of organization, separated out and made its own section. And this section is one that we often miss the fullest depth of because we've made the topic into a religious item, the topic of tithing. But when we see it from the point of view of the Suzerain-Vassal Treaty, we discover that this topic is not so much just about giving 10% of everything to God. Rather, the tithe in this book and in this chapter of Deuteronomy is steeped in the idea of tribute. Paying tribute to the king who owns your allegiance. And tribute takes on several forms, which we will discuss today. Because this ancient idea, when we begin to see the tithe in this manner... It becomes not just a religious impetus or command. It becomes a natural way of acting towards your king.
So let's open up to Deuteronomy 26 and read the chapter and then discuss the kingdom tribute. Deuteronomy chapter 26. And it shall be when you come into the land which Hashem your Elohim is giving you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the fruits of the soil which you bring from your land that Hashem your Elohim is giving you, and shall put it in a basket and go to the place where Hashem your Elohim chooses to make his name dwell there. And you shall come to the one who is priest in those days and say to him, I shall declare today to Hashem your Elohim that I have come to the land which Hashem swore to our fathers to give us. And the priest shall take the basket from your hand and place it before the altar of Hashem your God. And you shall answer and say before Hashem your God, My father was a perishing Aramean, and he went down to Mitzrayim and sojourned there with few men. And there he became a great nation, great, mighty, and numerous. But the Mitzrites did evil to us and afflicted us and imposed hard labor on us. Then we cried out to Hashem Elohim of our fathers, and Hashem heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And Hashem brought us out of Mitzrayim with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm, with great fear and signs and wonders. And he brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now see, I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Hashem, have given me. Then you shall place it before Hashem your Elohim, and you shall bow down before Hashem your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good which Hashem your God has given to you, and your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. When you have completed tithing all the tithe of your increase in the third year, which is the year of tithing, and have given it to the Levite, to the stranger, and to the fatherless, and to the widow, and they have eaten within your gates and have been satisfied, then you shall say before Hashem your God, I have put away the holy portion from my house, and also have given it to the Levite, and to the stranger, and to the fatherless, and to the widow, according to all your command which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commands, nor have I forgotten. I have not eaten any of it when in mourning, nor have I removed any of it for any unclean use, nor given any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of Hashem my God, and I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look from your holy dwelling place, from the heavens, and bless your people Israel in the land which you have given us, as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. Today Hashem your Elohim is commanding you to do these laws and judgments, and you shall guard and do them with all your heart and with all your being. You have today caused Hashem to proclaim to be your God, and to walk in his ways and guard his laws and his commands and his judgments and obey his voice. And Hashem has caused you to proclaim today to be his people, a treasured possession as he has spoken to you, and to guard all his commands, so as to set you high above all nations which he has made for a praise, and for a name, and for honor, and for you to be a holy people to Hashem your Elohim, as he has spoken. The tithe is a subject that causes a lot of discussion in the modern world. And in many ways, the tithe has become one of the most contradictory areas of contention for believers of various sects. For mainstream Christians, there is no question as to whether the tithe is something that is still applicable or how they are to engage in giving their tithe. Even though the New Testament never commands the giving of a tithe, there are many Christians who insist that if a command is not reiterated in the New Testament, then it's no longer applicable. There are many people who believe this who regularly preach on the applicability of the tithe. Too many, however, have a huge issue with the follow-through of actually giving a tithe in any way. 
In 2007, a Barna research study concluded that only 5% of all adults tithed to a church or a nonprofit agency regularly and consistently. Now, this study is a bit hard to parse as this study was conducted among all American adults and was not limited to those who considered themselves religious in any way. And this number changed from group to group. For example, 8% of Protestants gave a full tithe, while only 2% of Catholics gave in the same way. Now, that's not all that surprising. As a person who grew up in a Protestant church, this idea of tithe was one that was ubiquitous. I visited countless churches while in college, and nearly every single one of them, there was a plate that was passed or a box that was pointed out in every service to remind everyone of just how to give their money to the local community. So what these numbers tell us is that while the concept of tithing is widely taught in the mainstream Christian church, the practice of tithing is not widely engaged in. Now, giving, however, is much more widespread, as 84% of adults in the U.S. have given some amount to a church or a nonprofit organization. Now, what causes no end of consternation in this new movement of Torah observance is that among us, there is no consensus on the tithe. For some, the tithe was something that was only done with the produce of the field and animals of the flock, and so there is no tithe due today unless you are a farmer. For others, the tithe was intended for the Levite, and since we have no true Levites in our midst, then there is no tithe due to anyone. And for others, there is Deuteronomy 16, which speaks of using the tithe to purchase personal items during the festivals, and so this is where their tithe goes to themselves and their festival enjoyment, and very little goes elsewhere. And for still others, there's the issue of just how much is a person to give, and where is each portion to go? If we compile everything that the Torah has to say on the tithe and just how to split it and give it, then a person is expected to give anywhere from 30% to 23.3% to 13.3% to 10% a year, split in various ways based on various interpretations. And since there are plenty out there teaching the 30% or 22.3% tithe, since this is perceived as way too much of a person's income by the individual, many simply don't give at all. And then on top of all this is the issue that we encountered in the Barner research that I cited earlier. Even when a person believes in the applicability of the tithe, only a small cross-section of people give when it is taught an opportunity is given every week. When this lack of inclination to give meets the interpretive hesitancy of this movement, the results are that regular giving to local communities drops from even the 5% of the average adult in the U.S. Now, the only reason that I've gone into all of this is simply to demonstrate the lack of firm and consistent teaching or agreement on the tithe throughout the world, let alone the Torah movement, but also to demonstrate that even among people who agree in the concept of the tithe, participation in the tithe is quite low in the modern world. And no wonder. There are many religious entities in the world that have abused the gifts they have received. The money that is given goes to pay for lives of luxury for those who are to be the servants of their flocks, while the people themselves live in poverty. Planes, houses, expensive cars, vacations, and much of it being enjoyed by wolves who have taken advantage of their flock And it is these who tend to be the biggest names and faces that the world sees of Christianity. Wolves fleecing the flock. But frankly, none of that matters. 
What matters is what the Bible actually says about the tithe. And as we will see, this tribute portion of the tithe is something that is not given at all times. It is something that, at least here in Deuteronomy, is limited to a specific time. Verse 1 says, When you come into the land and you possess it and dwell in it. This tithe was a tithe that was limited to once in the land. The tithe was not expected of Israel while they were in the wilderness. In fact, if we turn back to Numbers 18 and consider what the Torah has to say there about the tithe, we find that the tithe is part of the inheritance of the Levites. Both here and in Numbers 18, the two largest chunks of text on this topic, the concept of giving a tithe is connected to being in the land and having received the promised inheritance, something that is of vital importance to realize. Now, there are many who will try to make the case that the tithe is for everyone at all times. And there may be something to that, which we'll get into shortly. But when we take these chapters at their plainest meaning, then there is a time and a place that a person is expected to give a tithe, and there is a time when people are not expected to give a tithe. Continuing on in verse 2, each person is to gather together a representative portion of their tithe and bring it in a basket to the temple or tabernacle and present it there to a priest. And the opening statement that the one bringing the tithe makes confirms the idea of the opening verse. I declare today that Hashem has brought me into the land that he promised to give to my ancestors. Again, this tithe is connected to the idea of being in the land only once in the inheritance that Hashem has promised. And this is one of the clues beyond the fact that this book is steeped in the language of suzerain vassal treaty that helps us to see that the tithe here is not simply a religious exercise. It is an exercise that is directly connected to being in a place of promise. Again, this is important to understanding the tithe and its applicability. In verse 5 through 10, we read of the declaration that the worshiper is to make while presenting his tithe, or rather his tribute, before Hashem. I was a foreigner. My ancestors went to a foreign nation, and in this foreign nation we were mistreated and we were made slaves. And it was from this place that Hashem heard our cries. While we were estranged from him and among the nations, he heard and he delivered us out of the enslavement of others. And he has brought us into this land of bounty and fullness. And so I bring this tribute of the bounty that I have received because of his faithfulness. And there it is. The key to something that we're going to talk about in just a moment. The key to whether or not the tithe is something that applies today or perhaps more importantly, whether the tithe applies to you individually. Now, after this declaration, we read that the worshiper is to bow down before Hashem, a word that means to prostrate oneself in homage, commonly used to describe what subjects or those who are conquered by a king did when in the presence of that king. Only rarely is this word used to describe what a person is to do before Hashem, but this is one of those places. And in verse 11, the subject is to then rejoice in all that Hashem has given him. And in verse 12, we read something that is a bit confusing. When you have tithed in the third year, which is the year of tithing? What? Is this the only year of tithing? Or is this a special year of tithing? What's being spoken of here? 
Now, the fact is that the text itself is not all that clear. The plain reading of the Hebrew simply says, in the third year, the year of tithing. But isn't every year a year of tithing? There's something that we're missing here, and the Hebrew text of the Bible doesn't seem to provide an answer. So we need to look elsewhere to discover just what is going on here. Fortunately, we have several other translations and ancient commentaries that might help to shed light on this particular verse and its application. So let's turn to these ancient translations and commentaries and see how they handled the text in these areas. First off, let's go to the Septuagint, the 2nd century BCE translation of the Hebrew into the Greek. If we turn to Deuteronomy 26 verse 12 in this translation, it reads the following way. And when thou shalt have completed all the tithings of thy firstfruits in the third year, thou shalt give the second tenth to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and widow, and they shall eat in thy cities and be merry. The Septuagint here speaks of a second tithe in the third year. This appears to state that after the first tithe referenced earlier in this chapter, there is a second tithe that's to be given to the Levite, stranger, orphan, and widow. The traditional vulnerable classes that we've read so much about various ways to care for. Now, this is interesting, but it begs the question, who gets the first tithe? If the tithe to the Levite is part of a second tithe that only occurs every third year, then who gets the first tithe? Well, if we turn to Targum Jonathan, which is not just an Aramaic translation, but is one that also includes some inline commentary, we read this, Deuteronomy 26.12, from the Targum Jonathan, or Targum Pseudo-Jonathan. When you make an end of tithing all the tenths of your produce in the third year, which is the year of release, you shall give the first tenth to the Levites, the second tenth, which is the tithe of the poor, to the stranger, the orphan, and the widow, that they may eat in your cities and be satisfied. Now, that seems to provide some extra clarification. Every year, the first tithe was to go to the Levites. It was only in the third year, a year that is connected to the Shemitah release, that a second tithe would be collected and distributed to the orphan, poor, and widow. Okay, that, that makes a lot more sense, right? A second tithe every third year as part of caring for the poor, orphan, and widow. So from this verse, we could estimate a 13.33 tithe yearly, if we were to break up the second tithe that these translations of these verses seem to speak of over this three-year period. Every year, take care of the Levite. This is their inheritance. In the third year, add a portion to your tithe to care for the other vulnerable classes as well. Something that would have been added on top of the regular care for these classes that we find in the other commands throughout the Torah. And when the second tithe is given, there is another declaration that is to be added to the second tithe. I have given the tithes to these vulnerable classes according to all that you have commanded. I have not taken of any of it, nor have I used any portion of it for any kind of unclean use. I have treated it just as holy as if it were coming to the temple itself. I have done what you asked. Now please look on from your dwelling place and continue to bless this land that you have given us. In essence, we have passed on the portion of our inheritance to those who have no inheritance or promise of inheritance from you so that everyone is cared for. Now please return blessing on us so that we may continue to allow this blessing to trickle down. And then in the final parts of the chapter, the section on the legal portion of Deuteronomy finishes in this way. Do all of this that Hashem has commanded you. 
You have declared Hashem to be your God, and you have agreed to do what he said. And he has caused you to become his people, and you will be honored and elevated over all the peoples of the world. Simply remain true to him and his ways, and he will remain true to you. And thus ends the legal portions of the book of Deuteronomy. So let's return to this idea of the tithe as a tribute, and let's dig in a little bit further. As I've already covered, tribute was a big part of the suzerain-vassal treaty. The suzerain oversaw the welfare of all areas, including the welfare of his vassal states. And so the vassal was expected to pay into the national coffers to allow the high king to accomplish his greater goals for the subjects. Wikipedia says this, I know, a, a great scholarly resource, regardless, uh, just went to it for a definition. It defines tribute in this way. A tribute, from Latin tributum, or contribution. It is wealth, often in kind, that a party gives to another as a sign of respect, or was often the case in historical contexts of submission or allegiance. Various ancient states exacted tribute from the rulers of lands which the state had conquered or otherwise threatened to conquer. In cases of alliances, lesser parties may pay tribute to more powerful parties as a sign of allegiance, and often in order to finance projects that would benefit both parties. Tribute was something that a conquered people would pay as a sign of submission but tribute was also something that occurred in the case of alliances as a sign of allegiance. And in the case of an alliance, the agreements for such things would have been accomplished through a treaty, such as a suzerain-vassal treaty. And so here in the close of the legal portions of Deuteronomy, we read of the rituals that are to be practiced alongside the giving of tribute to the suzerain from his vassal. Not a conquered people, rather a people who have entered into an alliance with a new king. Now, one of the issues that causes the confusion that I spoke of earlier when it comes to the subject is that in the New Testament, Yeshua ascends into the heavens as king. And yet in no place in any of the epistles is there any mention of giving a tithe to Yeshua. In fact, the only times that the tithe are mentioned in all of the New Testament is in the books of Matthew and Luke when Yeshua points out the hypocrisy of those who are fastidious in tithing even the smallest of crops, and who then forget matters of justice and love. Matthew twenty-three twenty-three. But woe to you Pharisees, because you tithe the mint and the rue and every plant, and pass by the justice and the love of God. These you should have done without leaving the others undone. This is the only place in the New Testament that could be construed as a command to tithe. These you should have done. See, the tithe, even of the smallest things, continues. All you have to do is rip this statement out of the context of the history and the surrounding text and use it as a soundbite. Otherwise, there is no command to tithe in the New Testament. Now, why would this be if Yeshua is our king? If he is a suzerain and we are vassals, then shouldn't there be a tribute that's paid to him in some way? The fact is that there is a mention of this way of thinking in the New Testament, but it's not steeped in the language of tithing. And I think one of the reasons for this is that the tithe is often seen as compulsory, 
And 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not of grief or of necessity, for God loves a joyous giver. Or as other translations put it, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver, a giver that rejoices at the bounty that remains once his duty is accomplished to his king, as Deuteronomy 26 puts it. The tithe as it is given, however, is a compulsory command, and giving is not to be compulsory or reluctant. And it is this reason that I believe to be the reason why there is no specific reiteration of the tithe command. Not because there are no Levites. In the New Testament, those who serve in the church take on the role of Levite. 1 Corinthians 9 makes it very clear that those who occupy these positions of full-time service should earn a living from their service. 1 Corinthians 9, 13-14 Do you not know that those serving in the holy place eat from the holy place, and those attending to the altar have their share of the offerings of the altar? So also the Master commanded that those announcing the gospel should make their living from the gospel. So that can't be it that there's no Levites. It is a God-ordained command that those who dedicate their lives to full-time service should earn a living from this service. And yet, even in this, a tithe is not commanded. Rather, it is giving and generosity that is spoken of by the apostles. And 2 Corinthians contains the largest block of text delving into this idea of giving and generosity, and it is directed at a church that seems to be exceptionally reluctant to participate in giving. Let's return to 2 Corinthians in a roundabout way first. Let's return to 2 Corinthians in a roundabout way, though by looking at the situation surrounding this declaration that giving is not to be compelled or reluctant. And this path begins all the way back in Acts 11, where we read the beginning of an event that is spoken of several times throughout the letters of Paul. Acts 11:25-30. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to seek Paul, and having found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came to be that for an entire year that they came together in the assembly and taught large numbers. And the taught ones were called Christians first in Antioch. And in those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Chagav, stood up and indicated by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine over all the world, which also took place under Claudius Caesar. So the taught ones, each according to his ability, decided to send relief to the brothers dwelling in Judah. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. Now, fortunately, due to secular historians, we can pinpoint exactly when this famine occurred. The 4th century historian Orisius mentions a famine in Syria, which occurred in 46 and 47 AD. A translation of Orisius was later made by King Alfred of England during the Middle Ages and was quoted in what is known as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. The chronicle lists British history from 1 AD to 1154 AD, and it contains the following remarks of note. AD 46. In this year, Claudius, the second Roman emperor to invade Britain, put much of the island under his control and added the Orkneys to Rome's kingdom. This took place in the fourth year of his rule. In the same year, a great famine in Syria took place, which Luke mentions in his book, The Acts of the Apostles. Due to his incompetence, the Emperor Claudius Nero almost lost control of the British Isle. A.D. 46. 
In this year, Emperor Claudius invaded Britain and conquered much of the island. The island of Orkney was also added to his empire. A.D. 47. In this year, the evangelist Mark began to write his gospel in Egypt. A.D. 47. During the fourth year of his rule, there was a great famine in Syria, which Luke mentions in the book, The Acts of the Apostles. A.D. 47. In this year, Claudius, ruler of the Romans, invaded Britain with an army and took control of the island, and Roman rule was forced on all the Picts and the Welsh. 46-47 CE. The years that Rome invaded Britain and took control of the island. The year that Mark began to write his gospel. The years that a great famine that Luke mentions occurred in Syria and surrounding areas. Josephus also speaks of this famine, and he places it in the area of Syria and Israel between the years 44 and 48 CE. And from this, we can begin to build a picture. Sometime before 46 CE, Paul and Barnabas arrive in Antioch, and they stayed there for a year. During that time, some prophets began to arrive in Antioch, and one of them prophesies that a famine is coming, quote, to the whole world. Now we know from history and from other places in the epistles that this particular famine was not a worldwide event, but was rather a localized event that covered a vast portion of the land bridge between Europe, Asia, and Africa. This would have included parts of what we call Syria, Lebanon, Israel, and Jordan. But this famine did not include the areas of Turkey or Greece. How do we know? Because of 2 Corinthians. In Acts 11, we read that a collection was begun in Antioch for the people of Jerusalem, who were to soon come under this famine, and then we don't read much about it again. The next time that we read of this collection attempt is at the end of the book of Romans, Romans 15, 25 through 28. It says, But now I am going to Jerusalem to serve the holy ones. For it pleased those in Macedonia and Achaia to make some contribution for the poor among the holy ones who are in Jerusalem. For they were pleased, and they are their debtors. For if the nations have shared in their spiritual matters, their duty is also to serve them in material matters. Having completed this then, and having put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I shall return through you to Spain. A collection was being taken by Paul to the poor in Jerusalem, a contribution that had been added to by those in Macedonia. We read of this again in 1 Corinthians 16, 1-5. And concerning the collection for the holy ones, you are to do as I gave orders to the assemblies of Galatia. Every first day of the week, let each one of you set aside, storing up whatever he has prospered, so that there are no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I shall send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go, then they shall go with me. And I shall come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. So on the first day of the week, the Corinthians were to come together and to set aside what they had prospered and store it to be given in the collection that Paul was taking for those who were suffering from the famine in Jerusalem. And these same orders were given to the church in Galatia, and it is thought that we catch a glimpse of this collection event in the book of Galatians in passing. Galatians 2, 7 through 11. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel to the uncircumcised had been entrusted to me, even as Peter to the circumcised. For he who worked in Peter to make him an emissary to the circumcised also worked in me for the nations. So when James, Peter, and John, who seemed to be supports, came to know the favor or the grace that had been given to me, 
They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship in order that we go to the nations and they to the circumcised, only that we might remember the poor which I myself was eager to do. And when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was at fault. When Peter and the others came to Antioch, there was a clash of sorts. The apostles to the circumcised and the apostles to the nations coming together. And when James, Peter, and John learned of the grace that had been given to Paul. What is this grace? It's believed that this grace was the gift of the churches of Greece and Asia to those who were suffering from the famine in Jerusalem. And when these men learned of these gifts that had been received by Paul and was being taken to Jerusalem, they extended the hand of fellowship and they agreed to go their separate ways with their separate audiences with the impetus to remember the poor. And who were the poor? Well, in the book of Romans, the poor were the people of Jerusalem, the people that Paul and Barnabas were in the process of taking up collections for. Now, the largest part of the story is found in the book of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 through 9. But before we get there, let's make one more stop. Who is Macedonia? Because this is of great importance to what Paul says to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians. So just who is Macedonia? Well, Macedonia was a region north of Greece and eastern Europe. The primary city in Macedonia was a colony named Philippi. This is the region that Paul is led to first visit in a vision in Acts 16. While in the city, Paul meets Lydia, casts out the spirit of Python, is imprisoned, and then an earthquake occurs in the night, and the jailer and his whole household were saved. Later in Acts 20, Paul runs from the uproar that he had caused in Ephesus to Philippi in Macedonia, and he spends three months there before leaving. Now, Macedonia, the little we know about it, tells us that Macedonia was a hostile city to Christianity and to the gospel. And especially in the times of Emperor Tiberius, Claudius, and even more so during the time of his successor, Nero. In Acts 18, we read that Emperor Claudius wrote an edict ejecting all Jews from Rome. This is the same emperor who was ruling during the famine in Jerusalem. The emperors Caligula, Claudius, and Nero were each famous for the persecution of the Christian church. Claudius was famous for participating in the Colosseum from time to time and disemboweling those who found themselves there personally. And Macedonia was a region that was fully under his control. This was an area where the worship of the Jewish God was met with ostracization from the community. A person who converted from paganism to Christianity was unable to buy or sell in the market. They were often mocked and ridiculed on the streets. They were the subject of false accusations and were often dragged off to prison or death based on a mere accusation. Macedonia was not friendly in any way to the growing movement of Christianity. And so it's with this in mind that we turn to 2 Corinthians 8 and we begin to read of an intersection of this persecuted region and the contrast of those in Corinth and the concept of generosity and giving. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4. Now, brothers, we make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the assemblies of Macedonia that in much trial of persecution, the overflowing of their joy and their deep poverty overflowed into the riches of their generosity. Because I bear witness that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave voluntarily 
begging us with much urgency for the favor of taking part in this service to the Holy Ones. As Paul was traveling through his journeys of Asia and Greece, he was taking up this collection for the people of Jerusalem who were in the midst of a great famine. And at this time, Paul travels to a region in which the Christian community was suffering poverty and persecution. And this region of Macedonia, who had so very little, they gave beyond their ability of their own free will to help out their brothers in Jerusalem. They saw themselves as indebted to Jerusalem as the source of their faith. And it is this act of the grace of God that Paul uses as leverage to shame the relatively rich and peaceful church in Corinth into contributing to the same cause. Did you get that? The giving of the people in Macedonia, while Paul speaks glowingly of it, it's attributed to an act of God's grace. Later in chapter 8, Paul even references Yeshua's change of status as he became poor for the sake of making others rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Messiah, Yeshua the Master, that being rich, he became poor for your sake so that you might become rich through his poverty. But the church in Corinth was reluctant. Even after the instructions given in 1 Corinthians on how to take up and save the collection so that it would be ready when Paul returned, there was a problem. The people of Corinth believed bad intentions of Paul. Throughout the letter of Second Corinthians, Paul defends himself from attacks that we never actually read. In several places, we see evidence that a number of the Corinthians believed that the apostle was using the collection as a pretext to steal their hard-earned cash. We see such in Paul's insistence that he was not a, quote, peddler of God's word, 2 Corinthians 2.17, in his denial that he practiced cunning, 2 Corinthians 4.2, in his claim in one place that he did not defraud anyone, 2 Corinthians 7.2, and in another that neither he nor those that he sent to Corinth were intent on swindling the community, 2 Corinthians 12, 16-18. And throughout this letter, Paul refers to certain competitors that seem to be opposing him in the church, and who I find likely to be the source of these accusations. In verse 10-11, through 11, we discover that when Paul passed through Corinth earlier, they had expressed excitement at the opportunity to give to the Jerusalem church. But apparently news had reached Paul that some reluctance had cropped up in the church, and that when he returned there would not be any collection to be had. And in verse 12 through 15 we read this, 2 Corinthians 8, 12 through 15. For if the readiness is present, it is well received according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Not, however, that others should be eased and you be hard-pressed but by fair sharing, that now, at this time, you are plenty for their need, so that their plenty might also be for your need, that there might be fair sharing, as it has been written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had not less. And here Paul gets to one part of the matter that correlates perfectly with Deuteronomy 26. You have a readiness to give, and that is awesome. But no one is expecting you to put yourselves into hardship for the sake of these others. Rather, through sharing of your abundance, you might provide for those who have very little. And then when the time comes that you have very little, that these others, because of their indebtedness to your gift of grace, would be willing to help and to support you in your need. 
In verse 16 through 19, we discover that it was likely Titus that informed Paul of the reluctance to give of the Corinthians as he decided to go to Corinth with others, with part of the purpose being to collect based on the promise that the church had given to participate in the collection that was being taken. And in verse 19 through 21, we read that Paul did it in this way so that there would be no blame that Paul was seeking to enrich himself through this collection, since there was another that would be receiving the collection, namely Titus. As we open chapter 9, we discover that part of the problem was that Paul had bragged to the Macedonians of the willingness of Corinth to give. And he was afraid that upon his return with some of the members of the churches of Macedonia, they would find that all of his boasting of them would have been in vain, and that the Corinthian church would then be put to shame. And so Paul arranged for this early arrival of Titus so that the promised gift could be arranged and ready before Paul arrived. And in verse 5, Paul has to remind them that this gift is being given as a blessing to those in need not as an act of greediness on the part of Paul and Titus and the others who were traveling with them. And it's here that Paul interjects the idea that giving is not something that should be compelled and sad, but rather it should be joyous and voluntary. And here at the end of chapter 9, Paul makes the shift. Rendering of this service provides for the needs of the holy ones, the saints. But when you give generously, it also leads to thanksgiving to God. And it will be this act of generosity that will act as proof to them of the confession of your faith to the gospel, and this will cause them to glorify God. Paul closes his appeal by pointing out that none of this is to be done for the purpose of the enrichment of any one person. Acts of giving and grace are to be attributed to an act of God's grace towards us. No person of wealth should be able to come in and take over a community and make them do what they say because of a gift that is given. The gift is not an act of grace from the individual who gave. It is not them being a patron over a client. Rather, it is an act of the grace of God. He is the patron. And as such, those who received gifts of grace should glorify and praise God for the gift. Yes, the person who gave the gift was generous, and they should be remembered in prayers of thanksgiving, but the ultimate source of the gift is God. Throughout Scripture, we find that these acts of giving, whether the tithe of the Old Testament or gifts of giving and grace in the New Testament, in reality the same thing and used for the same purpose, They are to be given by those who find themselves in a place to be able to give. No one should be shamed or made to feel guilty for being poor and unable to give. But those who have plenty and who have the world's goods should recognize that this bounty was given by God and so a portion should be passed on to others for kingdom purposes. When given to a full-time minister so that they can continue to minister without hardship, as Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 9, and the Torah speaks of it in Numbers 18, or to one of the vulnerable classes as an act of charity and love, as Paul steeps the concept of giving in 2 Corinthians 8-9, through and the Torah speaks of it in Deuteronomy 14 and 26. And so we get to the real area for us, each to contemplate, and the deeper point of this idea. The tithe is something that is supposed to be given once the promises of God have been fulfilled in your life. 
And so the question is, has God fulfilled the promise of freedom and abundance in your life? Because you see, giving is not something that is accomplished only through physical means. You see, nothing in 2 Corinthians can be taken in isolation. And earlier in the book, chapters 3 through 5, Paul goes through a discussion of the temporary nature of the physical and the permanent nature of the spiritual. And in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul spoke on the gifts that we have been given by the Spirit of God, the more permanent things of the world that are to be used for the benefit of others in the kingdom. And so the question is this, are you living in God's bounty? Not simply the lesser blessing of physical bounty, but the greater gift of spiritual bounty. Have you been blessed with a gift of the Spirit? You see, when many of you heard that only those in a place of promise and inheritance are expected to tithe, many of you breathed the sigh of relief that nothing would be expected of you. So I ask of you, are you a new creation? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you been the recipient of a gift from God? If you have, are you giving of it back to the kingdom of God in some way? Or is it just lying in a storehouse, stagnant and unused, sitting on a shelf, gathering dust? Have you been given a little? Are you using that little for the kingdom of God? Have you been given a lot? Are you giving of that abundance back to the kingdom of God? The tithe, while it is a physical act of giving of your physical bounty to God, it is not solely a physical act. The tithe is also a spiritual act, one that every person in the kingdom of God should be engaged in. So are you giving of what God has given you? Not just wealth, anything, anything at all. Or are you keeping it to yourself? Because if you consider yourself a person who is full Bible, then you should be giving. Physically, spiritually, both are important. But you should be giving something to someone who needs it. Not out of compulsion or shame or greed, but out of love and joyfully. This is the gift that Hashem loves. This is a gift that can be used by Him. And as we spoke of last week, it is these gifts that provide for your brothers who work on your behalf, lifting them up in their weakness. And as we provide for the needs of those around us, we bring life to the community of our King. So Dereshchai, seek life in every way. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Darish Kai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Darish Kai, as we seek life. Shalom.